It's always fascinating watching this on a Sunday morning because you have the extroverts, they're running down the aisles. They're grabbing everybody they can. The introverts are kind of like, okay, don't touch me. Just back off. But God has made us all in beautiful ways, hasn't he? For those that are visiting us, we are in a study in the book of Nehemiah. We are at Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 10. And just do a little review. You know, we understand that Nehemiah was convinced of God's direction. And there's a series of major God moments that got him there. We find him doing what many people tried to do before him, but were unsuccessful. In fact, 120 years they tried to rebuild this wall, and nobody could. There was those who were willing to take a stand, and there was those who pushed against that stand. And what we discover is the deeper he goes into the project, the more complicated it becomes. And the more he prays, and the more he works, things continually get worse. The more they accomplish their task, the greater the opposition grows. And we talked about the opposition from the outside, but there's a new enemy we find here in our text this morning. It's the enemy inside. It's what we often call discouragement, depression, despair. And when it invades, it distorts, it exaggerates, it creates rumors and accusations. But what it does, it takes its emotional toll. In one of my counseling classes a long, long time ago, I remember a professor saying that discouragement often leads to depression, which often leads to despair. And he talked about these progressive levels that we allow ourselves to get down. Now, let's remember the project for a moment. This wall was just not a simple white fence in your backyard. It was two and a half miles long. The average height was 40 feet. That's a tall wall. I don't know how tall this auditorium is, but think about a wall that big. And its average thickness was eight feet. So let's pick up the story in verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10. In Judah, it was said, and again, these are the rumors running around. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. Those are the workers. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times. Now, the word ten times here is a Hebrew phrase that just says it was many times. It wasn't ten. It was over and over. Every corner they turned, they heard this. You must return to us. They said, quit it. Just knock it off. You're going to die. You don't have enough building material. Just quit. And in these short verses, we see there was four losses. There was a loss of strength. There was a loss of vision. There was a loss of confidence. And there was a loss of security. Discouragement. Call it whatever you want. It creates and makes us afraid. And here's what it does to us. The first thing it does, it takes hope out of our vision. It robs us of hope. 
It goes down this long corridor, and, and you don't see any hope. In fact, it's, it's like walking down this long tunnel, and the only light at the end of the tunnel is that of an oncoming train. Secondly, it causes us to travel to the worst-case scenarios. I mean, look what's going to happen. If I stay on this wall, I'm going to get killed. And so people said, listen, come on, just quit. Don't worry about it. 120 years, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen now. But it takes the future into the present. And then instead of running on our confidence in God, we run on anxiety and fear. And so you hear a lot of people saying this when they go into retirement. Oh, no, am I going to run out of money? Or people have jobs, and with the job market being the way it is, am I going to lose my job? Despair causes us to travel to the worst-case scenarios. Three, it ruins relationships. Have you ever noticed when you grow weary and discouraged, everyone gets on your nerves? (laughs) Everyone bothers you? And let's be honest, when you're in despair, you're just not nice to be around. And that's why a lot of people don't come around. Usually someone in despair points out everything that could go wrong. Remember Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh? Fourth, it makes you selfish. When you're in despair, and I know for me, nothing else matters. It's kind of look at me, take care of me. Nobody cares about me. And somehow we kind of forget that other people have lives. And they have struggles and they have difficulties and difficult situations. And when you read some of the old literature down through the centuries, past theologians have called this soul weariness. It's the kind of weariness that's deep inside. It's hard to define. Sometimes it's labeled depression. Sometimes it's labeled despair. And if you've ever been there, you know it's not a nice place to be. And some of you might be there right now this morning. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus spoke these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, however you want to define this scripture, and we can take it in pieces, but look at it this way. However you want to define this scripture... That in Christ, and I talk about in his church because this is the body of Christ. He's the head. We should find rest. However, we want to define rest. And that can get complicated at times. And when you look at Christ's day, he was speaking to religious people. And the institutional religion of its day created weariness of the soul. See, according to the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious groups... No matter what you did, it was never enough. It was never enough sacrificing. It was never enough obedience. And they had all these rules and regulations. And they looked for every single time that you messed up. And they'd smack you down for it. And when I read that, I'm afraid that today in our churches, we can be guilty of creating weariness in our souls. And see, part of the problem is what's inside us. It's our definition of success. I know far too many people that just don't think they were ever successful. And I say, why? And they have this whole list of expectations they never met. Our vision is distracted by things and stuff that do not carry eternal significance. 
But yet we've given our hearts and our minds and our souls over to those things. And it's a very real problem for pastors. It's why so many quit. It's why so many through the years, and I'm told that my graduating class at LBC, we're down to now about 7% of us that are still around. 93% just said, you know what? I'm out of here. It's why people go down the, the road of moral and ethical failures. And like those who take drugs to numb the pain, they hide their pain with bad choices. And what we have to understand this morning is that the despair can cause us to make bad decisions. Now, I'd like to share a story. I'm very hesitant to share this story because it's very personal. And part of me is afraid that in sharing this story, you won't understand. You won't get the content of it. But a few weeks ago, when I was teaching our Discover Recovery class, someone in that class asked me this question. They said, Pastor, they said, every week you look like you're kind of full of joy and, you know, you're upbeat and happy. Is there ever a time that inside you're just a wreck, even though you portray that in the outside on a Sunday? And we had a discussion about that. But I also know it's hard to describe the depth of despair one feels when it goes off the charts. So I'm going to push through my fear. I'm going to risk. And I've told this story maybe five times in a public setting. That's it. So count yourself as either the privileged few or the one that says, man, our pastor is really, I don't know. My wife and I were called to a rather tough church, and we spent years there, and then we got called into church planting. And it's what they call cold turkey church plant, where you go into a city, and there's no core group, there's no base, you have to form that. It was a city of about 90,000, Barrie, Ontario, and we had no core group, uh, we had no income, and we had no direction except what we wanted to give. Now, we all know, and we use this phrase, that God will supply. Amen? Now, in our hearts, you know what we know that means? That God will give us a cushion. <laughs> he's going to give us a surplus. We know that he's going to supply, but we don't want the man existence. You know what man existence is? 40 days wandering, I mean, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. What happened? Every single day they woke up and they had enough for how much? One day. That's it. Every time they tried to store it up for the next day, that got rotten. Except it was kind of weird because that same stuff on a Friday, because they weren't supposed to collect it on a Saturday, he says, collect enough for two days. It'll be okay the next day. But we don't like man existence, do we? And during our time in that church plant, and you have to understand, part of this in my own heart, my issues, you know, I was raised that the man takes care of his family. Which means you got to make enough, just not for one day. You got to make enough for at least a week or a month or a year. You know, you got to have the pension, you got to have the life insurance. And we had none of that. I mean, it was just all gone. And there were days that we woke up and we had no idea where anything would come from. But I got to tell you that God always gave us enough for that day. But from a man's perspective, that is really hard. At least it was hard on my ego. And things are tough. 
They were tough economically because we had nothing. Um, Like I said, no life insurance, no pension. I mean, we had nothing. In the church planning situation, I still remember our, our van, which hauled everything to the plant every Sunday, went south. Then our car went south. And again, I was raised that I was to take care of my family. It's a pride thing. And you know how we look at missionaries and we help missionaries out? Well, the denomination I was part of didn't look at church playing pastors as missionaries. <laughs> Don't ask me why. Uh, but the environment was tough. I mean, it was a very secular environment. And when it came to the church, my wife was the kids' program director and teacher and everything else. <laughs> and her oldest daughter was the assistant. Now, you know how bad it was? It was so bad that I led worship. You guys want to complain about music? You could have really complained in that day. And we had to set up and tear down every single Sunday. And everything happened in our home. All small groups, all social events, all counseling. Now, having said that, on this side, it was just very discouraging and led me to a place that was not good. On the other side, in terms of making a difference, I got to tell you, those four years, more people came to Christ than my entire ministry to that day and since. It was absolutely incredible. Discipleship was happening. Transformation was in process. was an event. I, in order to earn some money, was working in a secular college, ran a ministry that ran about 80 to, about 80 to 100 students. I had access and influence to the highest levels of the college with the president and VPs and head of departments. And they asked me to teach business ethics. Imagine that, a preacher teaching ethics at a secular college. I worked in Juvie Hall, Sun Lake America, where, you know, if parents wanted me and parents wanted me, the judge says, go ahead. And so I had a captive audience of kids every single week. And I had a captive audience because I got the parents together. We did a small group with them. We helped start and run an overnight shelter for teens on the street. And you have to understand, in Canada, teens in the street were between the age of 12 and 15. When you're 16 in Canada, you can get welfare. It's called student welfare. So the kids in the street were really, really young. This is all in a city where 3% went to church on a Sunday morning. And most of those religious people were what we called pre-Vatican II Catholics. If you know anything about Catholicism, pre-Vatican II, heavy on the whole work salvation thing. I still remember Christians on the outside. They only ever wanted to know two things. How many people come on a Sunday morning and what were your offerings? And I got to tell you, that drove me insane. And I was not encouraged by those questions. But at one point in this journey, I was not at a good place. And I can't adequately communicate the depth of the darkness I was feeling and thinking. And I was tired of all the cute formulas, and some of them were the cute formulas that I would preach on. Just pray harder, just read this book, just praise Jesus. You know, just come to Jesus and he'll give you rest. And month after month and year after year, living with this tension, with God at work and major God moments, but being tired and despair capturing my heart and mind. And I knew I was called. I remember one point I I said to my wife, you know, why don't we just 
get a regular job. I can get income. And we can go help another church and be supportive to the pastor because we've been there, done that kind of deal. And for the first time in my life, I wanted to quit. Now, I need to say this in the next part of the lesson. Don't try this. You don't want to be where I was. And I was wrong. And yes, what I did was based on scripture, but I was twisting scripture to suit my desire. So that's my disclaimer. Here's what I told God. And I remembered that I was called. And I did something that we often call a fleece. Do you know what a fleece is? Try to get God's direction, say, well, do this, do that. But if you know the story, Gideon's fleece, he was trying to get out of the situation God called him into. Gideon knew what he was supposed to do, and so he used the fleece to try to get out of the situation. Not a good thing to do. And that's exactly where I was. Somebody I knew worked for Radio Shack. They were one of the executives. And they had season tickets to the Blue Jays, and every once in a while he would give me two tickets. This happened to be one of those times. And I remember going to the game. They were playing the Boston Red Sox for people that like the Boston Red Sox, Toronto Blue Jays, back in 1993. And on the way to the game, and by the way, I was going to a game that I didn't even want to go to, okay? Despair does that. My son wanted to go, and he was all excited, so I'm taking him. But on the way to that game, I told God, here's the deal. If I don't catch a foul ball, I'm out of here. I quit. Remember I said, don't try this? Remember I said, despair causes you to do stupid things? Now, in that situation, I was dead serious. And I was so serious, I didn't even consult my wife on that one. (laughs) I knew probably what she would say. And you have to understand the situation where they had these seats. The seats that I had, foul balls don't get hit to. And I knew that. And I never showed up until the second inning. I'm only going to give him a few innings, not too many. Now, remember I said despair causes you to make bad choices? This was the king of bad choices. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, here's the first thing. It's a lot better than I was. He posted guards at the most vulnerable place. Look at verse 13. He basically says this, don't work alone. Do not fight alone. Remember chapter three we talked about? And one of the key phrases that I left out was this. It was opposite their own house. See, and Nehemiah and his strategy said, okay, you know what? You're going to build the wall closest to your place because that's what's most vulnerable. So he had neighbors working with neighbors. In verse 13, it says, so in the lowest parts of the space beyond the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So you get the picture here, okay? Spear in one hand, tool in another. Someone guarding, someone working. He posted guards at the most vulnerable places, the lowest places they had access to. Number two, he reminded them of the greatness of God. Look at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. By the way, the nobles were who in chapter 3? They were the ones that wouldn't work. So he speaks about the greatness of God to all the workers, but also to all the people that are sitting there criticizing the workers. I love that. 
Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Don't be afraid. Fear leads to despair. Courage gives us tipping points for overcoming discouragement. Remember Israel in the promised land? They walk into the land that was promised by God to them. And 10 said, we can't do it. We're like grasshoppers. They're really, really big. Two said, man, it's everything God said. Let's go in and take it. But the 10 won out in the two. And people began to grumble and murmur. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Because they were afraid. They were in despair. They were discouraged. Think about the story of David and Goliath. All of Israel was afraid of this giant. And David comes along and says, who is this who mocks the great and awesome God of Israel? And he became an instant hero and celebrity. I think about the courage in our last series of Joseph, that at the end of this reign in Egypt, he had the courage to forgive his brothers. And so we see the plan in action in verse 15. When our enemies hurt that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans. I like the way that's phrased. We all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half the servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Jerusalem. So the leaders were in the project as well, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And he set up a defensive strategy, didn't he? That's the next point. Half held spears, half worked. There was day shifts, there was night shifts. And in verse 18, and each of the builders had a sword strapped on his, at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And, and the idea of the trumpet was that if anybody came to that spot, they blow a trumpet and everybody would come running. And I said to the nobles, to the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. Half of them held the spear from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. You know, I reflect upon this story. I had to ask this question this past week. Who was there for Nehemiah? You know, leaders often go it alone because they're going with everyone else. They're there for everyone else and no one comes along their side. And you're probably sitting here this morning saying, okay, well, this is a nice story. And some of you identify because you are in a really dark place. And others are saying, but you know, okay, Nehemiah was building this big wall, and yeah, you talked about David, and there was the, the giants. I just have a mundane life. 
I don't get to fight a Goliath and become a hero. Let me close the gap for you. While in your mind you may not think that you have some extraordinary opportunity, you need to realize that every opportunity, the principles are the same. You have and are and will face opportunities that will scare you to death, that you're going to have to risk so much, and they will exhaust you. You're going to have situations and circumstances in your life that will demand acts of courage. And I don't want you to miss out. Because when you are in despair and fear is overwhelming and when you want to quit. Remember these words that David penned so long ago. They're familiar and you can repeat them with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. When I work with people that struggle with very difficult pasts, usually in the realm of sexual abuse, that's a verse they memorize. Because there's a lot of days they wake up and they are walking through a valley of the shadow of death that I cannot even imagine. And I have a reminder on my shelf in my office that God is faithful. That yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know what that reminder is? It's a little baseball. It's a reminder that God is with me. By the way, even though I got there the second inning, guess when I caught the ball? Second inning. He didn't wait but a few minutes. And here's what it taught me. Even though at times you can make incredibly stupid choices. (laughs) There's always a way out because he is with us. What's interesting about that story is after that night, nothing changed in terms of outward circumstances. What changed was my heart and my mind. And despair took rest. And there was peace in my soul. So here's how we're going to close out this morning. For those that are going to be helping with communion, if you're not down front, you can come down front a while. And those that are going to serve can come here as well. We're going to take time to reflect upon Jesus. You know, we are told never to forget his sacrifice, his despair. And I know we read these words. But think about his deep despair when he was in the garden asking and praying and pleading and, and literally sweating bloods, I mean drops of blood. And, and on the cross when he says, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't because of his sin. It was because of our sin. So Jesus understands despair. And we understand that there can't be a resurrection without a crucifixion. And there's some things that have to die within us. And Christ has to come up. So we're going to celebrate with what we call communion. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's where we take elements, juice, and bread to remember his blood and his body that was broken for us. And we at Grace, we practice open communion, which means if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to be part of us.
Our tradition has been that we hold the bread and partake together, and we hold the cup and partake together. And at the end of communion, we're going to invite you to another response. We take an offering that goes then to help those in need. It's not part of our operational. It's part of us going out in our community and people that have a variety of financial needs. And we use that offering for that. So I invite you to respond this morning by reflecting upon what Jesus caused us to to remember. His death and his resurrection. His despair that turns into a resurrection. Let's worship.